Hey, Femfric Radio listeners, it's summertime, and up here in the Northern Hemisphere, things are pretty hot. Why not soothe your weary minds by dipping into the Patreon community, where all the cool Femfreakers hang out? You get early access to new episodes, bonus tomfoolery from me, Carolyn, and Anita, merch discounts, listener polls, and the occasional surprise treat. You'll also get the chance to pat yourself on the back for supporting feminist pop culture analysis. If you want to be part of transforming the entertainment landscape, then support like yours is crucial to making sure that progressive voices are heard and challenging criticism finds a platform. Head on over to patreon.com slash femfreak and sign up at any level to show your commitment to being critical of the media you love. Do not go into it with your MCU brain on because it's <laughs> we are trying to recalibrate y'all. We, we are trying to, to bring a very Caro movie into your home libraries. everybody, welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Ebony Adams. I'm stepping back into the host chair this week while Anita spent some time around Hollywood just looking for more premieres to crash. <laughs> but joining me to chase chickens around this yard is Carolyn Pettit. Hey, Carol. Hey, Ebony. How's it going? <laughs> All right. This week, we are surrendering to the contemplative pacing and character-driven appeal of a very Caro movie, Charles <laughs> Burnett's 1990 masterpiece, To Sleep With Anger. Stay tuned. Let's get into it. So, Caro, two things. Yes. One, much more important in the micro world of my heart mm. um, than the other. But let's start off by talking about news coming out about um, yeah. Activision Blizzard. Yeah. So, I know a couple of folks uh, who used to work at Activision. Oh, wow. And so, you know, I kind of had a sense that this was coming right. uh, news-wise. And then, like, a day later... You know, just the explosion um, of information about this this lawsuit and about the allegations. But I think you've been following this story much more closely than I have. Well, so the state of California uh, has sued Activision Blizzard, you know, you know, after like and it takes I, I, you know, I'm no expert on the process. But but by the time the state launches a lawsuit, I mean, there is investigations that have been done. There is like so people who are like, you know, there are people reacting on Twitter being like, well, but we need to get like the, you know, the accused sides of the story or whatever, like as if this is just some kind of, this is just smoke, right? This is just like people, but no, like, so um, exhaustive investigations into what, you know, the the term widely being used uh, is, which I think maybe even a little uh, glib given the, the seriousness of the, of the, of what's occurred, but is frat boy culture and mm-hmm. Activision Blizzard. Really, we're talking about truly widespread, deep, deep seated, you know, horrifying, uh, uh, culture of, of, of sexual harassment and misogyny. Uh, if you read the details of the lawsuit, um, there are, you know, examples in there that are just, you know, I mean, jaw dropping in the kind of, the or or should be i mean i guess in a, in a in a way there's a there's there's an understandable kind of almost jadedness at times perhaps among some because oh uh, yet another studio or publisher or you know gaming you know corporation or company or entity it proves to have been a a just hotbed of mm-hmm. of just male you know uh, s- uh sexual like abuse uh you know being visited by like powerful uh men on 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 women and and apparently you know on um you know on men too and and you know presumably pe- potentially people of all genders but 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 you know particularly i think women bearing bearing the tremendous brunt of of the horror and suffering and trauma here um, yeah, uh, and, and, you know, uh, so as, and as frustrating as, or horrifying as the allegations are, uh, also, of course, this, some of Activision Blizzard's, uh, initial response to mm-hmm. this has been, uh, just absolutely, um, uh, unacceptable, right? I mean, an initial statement was issued, which I don't have the text in front of me, but definitely had kind of boilerplate text to the effect that, you know, this is, um, these are unfounded and, you know, accusations. And, um, I mean, uh, you know, there's a a higher up at Activision Blizzard 
uh, I'm blanking on her name right now, but a, you know, like Bush era, like torture apologist, you know, um, Mm -hmm. is, is among the, you know, those kind of crafting these statements. Uh, I did see actually not long before we started recording this, um, that uh, I think very close to a thousand Activision Blizzard employees uh, sent an internal uh, letter to the company or to the, you know, the powers that be within the company, uh, just absolutely, you know, excoriating them saying that this, the, the, the response to these accusations is, is completely unacceptable. Um, yeah. Right. And so more power to them as they, you know, work to, uh, to make their voices heard and to make that company a place that is, is <laughs> where employees have more power mm-hmm to uh to uh to address uh uh these things i mean because this uh you know one thing these allegations or this lawsuit uh has sparked is another wave in the in the conversation about about the need to unionize the games industry because because you know i mean hr uh, is there you know people will people naive people who think that the system works if people just use the system will say things like, well, why don't you just go to HR? And it's like HR is there <laughs> to protect the company. Exactly. And, and I mean, you, you often are putting yourself at risk of further retaliation or mm-hmm. firing or, you know, other consequences. If you as an abused individual within a place like this who has no power, go to HR with your, you know, uh, issues, your accusations, because, you know, they're going to make that calculus of, well, we have this uh, powerful, you know, executive man who, uh, you know, or this this woman who is way lower on the on the, you know, on the totem pole. Well, it's a no brainer. Like, obviously, we have to protect the powerful, you know, the powerful executive or whatever the case may be. So yeah. um, anyway, yes, a, a, a really um <sighs> again it's truly kind of staggering some of the 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 specifics of the lawsuit um and um uh hoping that i mean wishing it that these things never happen in the first place but um i don't know you know uh yeah hoping that change good positive change comes out of out of this particular situation absolutely and just real quick because i have have nothing to add to your wonderful summation except to say that i want to remind people about the games and online harassment hotline yes yes please um so we will absolutely leave um you know information in the show notes we'll mention it again at the end of the show but just know that that resource is there if you have been affected you know if you know you are someone who would like to talk um you know get some advice just you know, have someone to to listen to. Yeah. Um, we yeah. we would encourage you to check out the games and online harassment hotline. And it's not just for people who are involved in who have worked at Activision. You know, who no. are involved in this this latest. Yeah. This is available for you. You know, um, you know, all the time. Right. And it's for you know, it's for people who work in the industry. It's for people who play games. Yeah. It's for people who know people who play games. Yeah. It really um, is for uh, everyone. Yeah. And and you know, y- your issues might have nothing to do with the Activision Blizzard uh, lawsuit. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I mean, even like bystander trauma is very real or like, you know, just yep. just maybe maybe hearing about it and seeing this st- story so prominently discussed reminds you of, you know, is triggering for you in some way because it reminds you of experiences that you've had in the past. You know, whatever it is, our, the, an hour, I shouldn't say hour, but the hotlines, um, uh, you know, uh, representatives are, are very trained you know they they know the language of games they know the space you yep. don't have to do the work of like explaining to them the the you know the dynamics of of the industry or what you know and what any what you know the terms that if you try to talk to uh, somebody outside of games they just don't get and you have to do all this explaining you know that's part of why the hotline is there is it's difficult to talk about these problems with people who don't understand right. what games, you know, how, games culture at all. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you can reach the hotline by texting a support to 23368 uh, from anywhere in the U.S. Um, and, uh, yes, uh, please avail yourself of that resource if if you uh, are, you know, in in, in need or uh, 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 wanting to, somebody to talk to. Yeah. Next thing mm. up. And, oh, this is, you guys... <laughs> Everybody, this is ooh, ever since I found out the news, I've been having to like recenter myself every day. My world is shooketh. Um, there are big changes coming to the Feminist Frequency podcast. And yeah. let's be frank. Let's be honest, folks. 
this is like pulling out you know one of the chairs on a tripod uh, things ain't gonna uh, be stable uh, after this you know i don't know how it works after this but one of our oh boy i can't even say it out uh, loud caro yeah. is gonna be leaving us to yeah. take a fantastic opportunity the opportunity of not doing this podcast <laughs> uh, but she is she is moving on yeah. anita and i are bereft anita is so bereft she couldn't even be on the podcast right. today she That's needed some right. emotional she's somewhere time. she's crying in the fetal position somewhere she uh, is yeah but yeah carol is 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 going to be leaving us yeah. this is her penultimate episode that's right um and so that's one of the reasons and i'm so glad we are tackling to sleep with anger um on this yeah. podcast. but you know left to our own devices anita and i would mm-hmm. probably have organized a conversation around some trash topic <laughs> that carol would just have to sit through but for her last two episodes we were like oh no we're gonna let you have this so yeah oh carol you're leaving yeah. us what I- yeah, I am. But I, I, you, you, the podcast will be great. You all will be great. Whatever you'll mm. figure out what to do w- without I don't know about me any of that. and find somebody you know way, way more you know intelligent and insightful than me to fill this chair. I don't doubt uh, you nope. know or whatever whatever the plans are, whatever the case may be. But gosh, I'm sure gonna miss. And I, you know, I'm sure I'll I'll get to say this again next week while Anita is here too. But I'm really gonna miss uh, this uh, weekly opportunity to to delve into into film and television and other media with with you ebony the way we do here it's been such a such a pleasure and a privilege and um yeah uh you know so uh it's it's it the world is we are all dealing with Mm. seismic shifts to our reality right now (laughs) won't say that this came at a bad time for me carol but i'm saying Mm. you know maybe you could have waited till the world got back to normal Uh, for whatever value of normal health (laughs) no we are we are so excited for what you're doing next um and although we will miss you like the deserts miss the rain oh thank uh, you this will this is, you know, we'll we'll do something and, yeah. you know, maybe we'll just have a Carol call in line where you just call and yeah. give like, you know, quick uh, bullet point reactions. There you go. Uh, once a month that yeah. you just play for people uh, to get that little taste of Carol. That's, so the, the, there you go. The everybody, kid. if you've been, you know, waiting to catch up on past episodes, I'm going to say slow it down. You got to, you know, <laughs> ration out these these remaining uh, two episodes. But but let's get into it because I am really eager to yeah. talk about today's topic. So yeah. I will say right off the bat, I had never seen To Sleep With Anger. I was convinced that I had, mm-hmm. but I had not. Mm-hmm. Um, and since watching it, have been unable to stop talking about it and it really oh boy it really throws into relief <laughs> the kind of trash i normally watch because oh. i literally watched this and was like oh okay like this is what a qualified filmmaker can do when you know given the time to expand on on celluloid but so his visually arresting and emotionally dense work has collected multiple prestigious awards over the past several decades. But filmmaker Charles Burnett is one of those creatives for whom critical acclaim has not translated into mainstream awareness or success. And one of his acknowledged masterpieces by people who are in the know is the 1990 gem to sleep with anger, which is a recent addition, fairly recent addition to the criterion collection. It's the story of a mysterious drifter whose charm and ambiguous motivations upend the life of a middle-class black family in South Central LA. It stars a host of amazing actors from the utterly compelling Danny Glover, who also co-financed the film, to the luminous Mary Alice uh, and Vanetta McGee. Rounding out the cast are folks like Carl Lumbly and Richard Brooks, basically like an Ebony's who's who of character actors I love to see um, as family members who either endure Glover's presence in the family home or welcome him with naively open arms. Um, yeah, this so, film, Caro, yeah, yeah. Well, first, kudos on selecting it. Thank you. So part of the reason I have to say I, I did, you know, I did have to be like, well, We've uh, we've watched, you know, MCU stuff for the last two episodes. Mm-hmm. That's probably garnered us a little higher than average listenership. I want to make <laughs> sure that I tank that um, <laughs> right. in my final two episodes. So, but, uh-huh. you know, this Carl Lumley is in this MCU actor, yes. Carl Lumley. So this is that's like right. MCU adjacent. Um, mm-hmm. But my goodness, this film. So I will, you know, admit that like the the, the thing that uh really interested me in this film uh, like in this film you know from a just conceptually like why I wanted to watch this film 
was originally, at least, was Danny Glover's presence in this film. And not only Danny yeah. Glover uh, as an actor, who I greatly admire and and who, you know, I, I think obviously has, you know, had mainstream success with the films like the Lethal Weapon franchise, but is also this, you know, virtuoso uh, uh, actor, you know, been from who, you know, gave a, an amazing performance in, you know, uh, like Raisin in the Sun, a pr- you know, production mm-hmm. of that. And anyway, but here's, he's in a mode, like I, what I was curious about, I think, was that he's in a mode in this film that I at least have not really seen him in before, which is mm-hmm. where that that kind of, that friendliness, that that quality that makes him seem so like approachable and, you know, as, a, as an actor and as a person is kind of, turned on its head a little bit uh, because he's uh, so he so Danny Glover plays the drifter Harry who arrives at this family home in in South Central LA and he's got this you know I mean this devilish really smile Mm -hmm. I would say and really just exudes this kind of seductive uh but but like um yeah like uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, you know, I'm, I'm blanking, but, but, you know, there's something clearly somewhat like evil lurking yeah. in the depths of this man. Um, and, but, but you understand, you feel that. And the way this film uses like imagery and, and sort of portents, like there's, there's almost a kind of like this film, if you, it's not a horror film, but it's like you could see how this same story just tonally shifted a little bit could, I think, easily be a horror film. Like there's so many mm-hmm. elements, things happen around Harry where you just sense the this evil aura that he gives off. Like there's a, a moment where um, uh, the, the daughter who is currently uh, uh, pregnant. Um, Linda. Mm-hmm. Rhonda. No, wait, I think Linda. Uh, um, oh God, we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so, you know, when she goes to, when she meets Harry and she goes to shake his hand each time she does. So like the baby in, in yeah. her, or like, you know, like she gets this kick of like, and it's this, it's, it's not like a nice kick. Like, Oh, the baby's kicking. Mm-hmm. It's like this interruptive, like there's something wrong here. Kick. And that's just one little example of these, these, clues and these little hints these things just in the air in the atmosphere around harry that kind of suggests that that there is something you know nefarious not just on a human level but on on a level that goes beyond just the realm of of the human into into something more more spiritual like as if he may almost be the devil in human form or something like that it's um, so wonderful. I mean, so you yeah. have this great movie poster. Uh, and so if you've never you know, heard of or seen the movie To Sleep With Anger, A, check it out. But B, just Google it. And you'll see you know, what I mean when I say that the, the movie poster yeah. you know, sort of illuminates what Kara's talking about so wonderfully. You know, uh, Harry, the character that Danny Glover plays, holding this you know, displayed handful of cards. And the look that he gives is so deliciously sort of malevolent as he looks directly Malev- down yes. the barrel you know, yes. of of the camera and you know the moment that you're talking about carol when um when harry reaches out to shake hands with pat her name is pat um uh junior's pregnant wife and the baby kicks within her belly but there's also the great scene where he is first you know sort of um introduced in the house and sunny brushes his feet with the broom right and so if if you're unaware um, of this folk superstition, um, brushing someone's feet with a broom is meant to portend like bad luck, right? And so Sonny does this once. And um, the reaction that Harry has, even for someone who subscribes to this belief, seems a bit outsized mm-hmm. in that moment. It's mm-hmm. not something that he laughs off, you know, um, mm-hmm. but he seems really sort of, you know, struck in in that moment. And then later he sees Sonny again with the broom in the house. He looks out of the bedroom door and, you know, there's a there's a brief moment of like fear or trepidation on his face and he chooses not to leave. There's there's no reason yeah. for him to have been, you know, um, to be afraid of that child, except that Sonny clearly and, you know, perhaps it's something about children, about the innocent, you know, perhaps see further and clearer into who he is. 
Um, and I think, yeah. you know, the film doesn't like beat you over the head with it, but it does offer you these just incredible sort of moments of thinking like, or wondering who is Harry? Is he more right. than, you know, the human male that he is? I mean, the fact that he is his, his name is Harry, you know, which is, you know, um, an old nickname for the devil, I think is important here. And names are super important um, throughout the film. But I think, yeah, that's, that's another way that we're, we're meant to sort of like, Hmm, question yeah who is this man the scene you know so i mentioned you know in the introduction carol's in this yard chasing chickens with me <laughs> there's a question there's a there's a scene i should go i should mention this danny glover who i think is probably like 40 45 in real life when this film comes out mm. is playing a man who's much older yeah um, and convincingly and so, i actually w- actually yes. went on like wikipedia afterwards to check to be like wait is danny glover like Older, hundred years I old. Yeah, like, he was because I really believed. Yeah, and, and no, I mean, yeah, he was. Anyway, so yes, yeah, yeah he. So he, <laughs> he is not just some random stranger who has you know intruded upon the lives of this family. He is a welcome mm-hmm. um, avatar of the past. He is someone that both Susie and Gideon, the matriarch and patriarch of this this black family, know from their past in the southern U.S. Um, and initially, they are delighted to see him. Mm-hmm. And it is not for you know a, a bit of time that he's his welcome starts to wear thin. You know, first with you know the the women who seem to have a clear understanding of the threat that he poses, and then later you know with like Junior and other members. But so there's a there's a scene where Harry is in the backyard of uh, Susie and Gideon's house, and there are two older men around him, and these are these are men who he has known from the past as well, like, you know, just blast from the past, these sort of roguish hangers on. And one of them is chasing a chicken in the backyard. And they are talking about Gideon, who has since fallen ill, and speaking about it in such a way that you wonder, are they about to invoke some sort of supernatural power to either hurt Gideon or perhaps to help him? And so Harry takes the chicken and is preparing to kill it. It's clear he's about to kill it. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, there's a question about, is that chicken about to be sacrificed in some sort of like, you know, folk ritual? Or as we come to find out, are they just about to kill this chicken for dinner? You know? Yeah. And so the way the film plays with that and plays with your expectations and makes you sort of like hold your breath, Yeah, you know, it's Uh, only possible in the hands of a really assured filmmaker who lets scenes play out and does not rush uh, things. I was so grateful for the pacing of this movie. And and my goodness. So Charles Burnett also uh, wrote this film and Mm -hmm. I was just so impressed by all the different sort of thematic concerns and like ideas and Mm -hmm. things that get woven uh, through this film, um, you know, like like just the amount of, of stuff that he had going on in his head as he was like writing this uh, this right. film that he wanted to engage with in in the text of this film, which he does so, you know, through narrative, I mean, through imagery, through so many, uh, yeah, just through so so much. This film is just so textually rich. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by the. There's this real kind of exploration and tension of um, of both like generational divide uh, between like the ge- the generations of the family, but also even you have the two um, you know uh, families of the the two sons and their wives, and there's this real tension between them because one one set I would say seems to have a little bit more. Um, uh, sort of respect or embracing of kind of what might be considered older traditions. And the other couple seems to be really just gung ho for like a more like a m- sort of, I don't know, mainstream capitalist kind of uh, contemporary lifestyle. Like there's a, I mean, there's one line in particular that I'm thinking of where um, I think it's, it's, um, it's sorry. Uh, it's so it's, uh, babe brother's wife says, I think, um, of the wife of, um, of junior, uh, something like, um, oh, she, she kept her afterbirth in the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't eat over there anymore. (laughs) Right. And, you know, you feel this, like, 
like the, those two couples, like they really have different ideas or different just whole attitudes and ways of being about like where they've come from, the traditions of the past, like who they are in the world today. And, mm-hmm. you know, and all that stuff to me is just so it's, it's, you know, it's so, it's so fascinating. And so just uh, richly um, uh, explored in this film. Yeah, um, I think so. Just speaking of um, familial ties, cultural ties. So the, the film opens with this absolutely amazing shot yeah. of Gideon, um, you know, sort of dressed in like Sunday best. Uh, in the background is an old photograph of a woman, sepia tone uh, photograph of a woman. There is a bowl of fruit uh, next to him on the table. And there is something that clues us in to the fact that this is maybe a, a dream state or what that what we're looking at is not necessarily something that is literally happening in that moment. Um, but as we watch Gideon and the bowl of fruit slowly become consumed um, by this mysterious, you know, fire that has, you know, arisen out of nowhere. It, there is a, there is a question that then, you know, is posed about, um, you know, sort of connections to the past and, and senses of self as we, you know, position ourselves within like family and within our own history. It's a, it's a absolutely, you know, beautiful shot. Um, but I think, and, and we're, as we're watching this opening scene, we're listening to, um, you know, iconic American singer, musician, sister Rosetta Tharp sing precious memories, this, this classic gospel tune, um, and about connections to the past. But yeah, so you have in this film, you know, this multi-generational family, not just, um, you know, Susie and Gideon, the parents, but their two sons and their respective families, Mm -hmm. but also everyone in the neighborhood who may or may not be related, but certainly have that sort of closeness that extended family um, has. It's a family network, regardless of whether there are actual blood ties there. There's the connection to the South, the sort of both mythic and very tangible sense of the South in, you know, the, um, the, the markers, you know, of like the garden, that that Susie and and Gideon <laughs> still have in their backyard, the chickens, yeah. you know, that they still the, rear back there. Uh, Gideon early on in the film makes a reference to a, a charm he has lost. Yes, uh, made by his, I believe he says by his grandmother, mm-hmm. and and I wonder if it isn't the the loss of that charm, like if that charm wasn't warding off Harry's evil, and if it isn't the right. loss of that charm that allows Harry. To then arrive on their doorstep and invade their their space, um, right? right? Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, and it's it's one of those like Harry exists both as a a, a real person, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, but also yes, on the level of um, kind of like symbol uh, for this family, yeah. you know. David Sims in an in a review that we'll link to talks about Harry as quote an avatar for a fading generation and way of life. And he Harry very much insists upon you know um, remembering and emphasizing the ways these things used to be done. He mentions in one conversation that he needs swamp root. You know he is mm. living this itinerant lifestyle. He is not settled. In the way that Gideon he, is, he he always makes a pallet on the floor to sleep exactly. on. Um, yeah, there's all these things, and he's just so full of. I mean, all of his comments, though, are. I mean, just to go back to the ways in which he he really uh, because you feel the family uh, become sort of infected in a way mm-hmm. over. The, the duration of Harry's stay, not only, I mean, Gideon's illness being like the most overt example, but the way too that the brothers end up really um, uh, in, in violent struggle with each other at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but everything Harry says is this sort of, um, I mean, it, it, it can sound in a certain way, like a kind of, uh, you know, maybe folksy wisdom yeah. almost, but it's also like deeply kind of immoral or, or, or evil from a certain perspective. Like he's talking about, he's talking to, uh, you know, about, about um, helping the homeless population of mm-hmm. Los Angeles. And, and he says something like, he says, um, take it, you know, 
to 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 this woman who works at a at a place where they they try to serve and help you know uh, hundreds or you know a thousand you know homeless people or whatever they can, and he says. Take in just one homeless person. You can't save them all. Medicine that works leaves a bitter taste. And yeah. it's it's this, it's all, but it's all stuff like that. That's just so, and the way Danny Glover is able to inhabit the role and inhabit this kind of, it has that kind of like, I mean, it's, it's, it's both like off-putting and repulsive in its, mm-hmm. in its like, uh, just disregard for, uh, for like compassion or for human suffering, but there's also something about it that he makes it sound kind of seductive in a way. Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so as I was watching this film again, to Sleep with Anger comes out in 1990. Uh, Danny Glover by this point has enough star power um, that he is able to uh, help co-finance the film and arrange for it to, you know. Um, to be made he has already made lethal weapon 2 by this point okay you know okay so he's got he's got he's got that kind of punch but also remember danny glover as mr in the color purple something Mm. a a role with which he will always be associated Mm -hmm. in my mind Mm -hmm. and this was such a wonderful reminder of the way that a man with his face which is so open and expressive and he's he's a big man he's a tall man and he uses his body and his size in such a way that um that you want to be welcomed within his space he can be very seductive but he carries that air of menace and threat so well you know and he will say he will be in one moment a person making you cry with laughter at his kind of like you know down home um conversations and behaviors Mm -hmm. and then the next minute you know spear you with a look that says yeah. this is someone who cannot be trusted he's absolutely fantastic he's in the so film. he's and th- so good and and the way that he holds his own and as you say Kara, like actually n- convinces you that he is an older man 20 25 years re- older than he actually real. is yeah you know um there's this great scene near the end of the film where harry is playing cards and talking shit with you know his old ancient buddies his lo- lodge um, buddies right there like in his a lodge, lodge buddies his, 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 his blood brothers yeah you know and um and bay brother uh is playing cards with them and harry says you ought to come back down home with me mm. essentially telling him you should abandon your family your responsibilities here come be like me surrender to the allure of the life that i lead mm-hmm. and he manages in that moment to convince bay brother this and one of the things that he tells him is you know you need to not be worried about that woman because first thing real men got more than one woman yes yes you know and you should uh, never you should never mouths, treat a woman as an equal he says exactly right you know yeah. and and uh many mules make the plowing easy so you one woman gets mad at you you just go stay with another woman mm-hmm. and you know it's the kind of thing that you might or might not laugh at as you know being ridiculous but um but when you when you stop for a moment and really think about what he is suggesting you know it it reveals itself to be so horrific and also so utterly bankrupt as a position, right? right? He's in this sad room with these other dudes, you know, who are living lives essentially of like quiet desperation. They have no one. Gideon has this loving family, this loving wife, you know, this, this amazing circle that he has grown and built. And they are saying, no, what we have card games, switchblades, mm-hmm. you know, uh, fly uh, strips is, uh, is better. Uh, corn, you know? liquor, corn liquor, and corn liquor. Exactly. Corn liquor. And also I would note, ain't none of those dudes got a woman, let alone multiple <laughs> women, you know, but, right. but, the, but the, the story they are telling the tales that these men tell, you know, is so seductive for mm-hmm. paper over that moment, but that he is, he is bewitched. He is in a way almost literally bewitched yeah. and ensorcelled um, by Harry. And it is a lot until he is physically away from from Harry and, you know, the sort of enchantment that he creates around him that he is able to come back to right. himself. Yeah, I, I want to you know also mention that this is a film. This is a film of or South Central Los Angeles. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, I think it is noteworthy to mention that for, a, you know, this is a film set, at, you know, in 19, released in 1990, set in South Central Los Angeles with nary a like 
drive-by shooting or yeah. like gang, you know, mm-hmm. member or anything of that nature, like in its narrative. Um, like, I mean, uh, just, I mean, for me, you know, as like the, the white viewer who has basically only ever been exposed to, if it's something said in South Central, like it is purely a gang or, you know, cop kind of drama. Like it's, it's, it's like refreshing and like all, you know, also like why, how come like just this is a perspective of life in there that I have here, you know, heretofore, like not been not not seen. And I mean, that's I'm sure, mm-hmm. I, you know, on me to some degree. But like, it's also just if you heard on the news uh, in L.A. at that time, South Central Los Angeles, you know, right. it meant one thing and one thing only. Um, but Burnett, I think, does find an interesting way, nonetheless, to engage with sort of the failure of uh, of of systems um, mm-hmm. to to adequately serve the people in that neighborhood, and right. like particularly for me, this comes at the near the end of the film because something really like just galling. I mean, the the the, the family yeah. has to endure something truly galling. So <laughs> so first of all, Harry, you know, much to my surprise. Um, uh, dies and I think the method mm-hmm. by which he dies is fascinating because it goes back to it's again like the child you know the child with the broom well here yes. it's the child's playthings the child's toys essentially that mm-hmm. kind of bring about Harry's death and we can I mean like there's just so much interesting like is it the innocence of what they represent and like what is it exactly like that that because there's clearly something happening there on kind of a a symbolic right. level or right. As opposed to just purely a literal level. But then, and I, like I, I half believed that Harry was going to like spring back to life. I, I honestly <laughs> did because I wasn't yeah. fully convinced that this film was not operating in the, right. you know, in, in that territory. But what does happen is that the paramedics who come to, um, well, first to, you know, to, 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 to try to resuscitate Harry to give him treatment. Like they say, well, you know, there's nothing we can do for him. He has, he has perished. And then like, they cannot take the body with them. Mm -hmm. They have to leave it there. And it's supposedly the County or whatever is going to like, come pick him up at some point. But like the, like the family can't get a straight answer from the county of like when they're coming and they keep getting oh the, the runaround. And so the the body of this man is just left there like on the floor of the kitchen for I don't even know what duration of time. But it's, yeah. the, you know, and and I mean, it's anyway, it's a fascinating narrative development that I mm-hmm. think does raise these issues of like of like how these I mean, because no, you know, fucking whatever white family in Sherman Oaks is going to probably have like the, uh, any, you know, whatever is going to probably have a dead body like just left on the floor for days. For I hours would imagine. and hours. Exactly. You yeah. know? Uh, so anyway, I thought that was just a fascinating uh, thing to happen in, in this film too. It is. And it is one of the few moments um, during which we see, you know, sort of the, um, the friction between the the life in the, the all black environment, um, right? In this family with the sort of larger world, and one of the things that is um, it, that is sort of you know symptomatic or is endemic to Charles Burnett's work is that it is. I mean, yes, there is a, there is a story here, and to slip to sleep with anger, things do happen. But in many ways, and certainly for much of the film, like I would argue, maybe the first third of the film. It is not so much about what is happening plot wise, but it is about like a slice of life. It is about these portraits we get, you know, of of people in certain moments and these moments layered on each other, you know, and in some ways it's it's less about, you know, like what is this family going to have to endure and will they come out strong at the other end or will they be consumed by this evil? But more just about this is. This yeah. is life, and these are people. Yeah. Um, and and this is this particular family. And I think it's important to realize that that's what's going on, because if you're not prepared for it, and this, you know, I, I will say right off the bat, this is certainly something that I had to sort of, you know, readjust um, my dial for. 
if you are not going in prepared for a very Carol movie, <laughs> right. you yeah. might become impatient with this film yeah. and frustrated with both its pace and with the performances. And so you need to be aware that part of what is like everything that's happening is done very deliberately, right. you know? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so like the performances for me, like it's, there's something very theatrical about mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of the performances. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you are unaccustomed to, or, you know, unwilling to enjoy sort of deliberately non-naturalistic, you know, um, in quotation marks, performances, you will perhaps be like, you will bounce off this film. But it's really important to note that like, because this, the film itself is like a portrait of lives, that there is something necessary about um, that kind of performance, as if these people are playing roles, as if they are being staged, because that is precisely what's happening. You know, like they have been staged in, in these various moments, in these various tableaus. Yeah, and and not only, I mean, I obviously, of course, you know, I love the way this film is just observant about the lives of its characters, mm-hmm. and we get that time and that pacing, though I, I fully agree, like, you're right, people do need to be, you know, uh, prepared for a film that is not uh, what we might say conventionally entertain. it doesn't offer the same pleasures that mm-hmm. you, you, you know, we often come to come to a film expecting, but, but also I want to just also mention the the, the the thoughtful and we've touched on this a little bit but the really thoughtful and deliberate use of of imagery in this film yeah. too I mean even just you know early in the film the there's you know the um uh sunny the the young boy right um yeah. I think he's in bed and he's got this like half-eaten apple in his mm-hmm. hand and then you know and I think right before Harry arrives um there's an egg that falls on the floor and cracks open yeah. and it it just it 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 vibrates with meaning. It seems to suggest like, oh, you know, bad, is, you know, things are not going to mm-hmm. go as go according to plan here for a while. Um, really just thoughtful and deliberate and really well constructed and, and lovely use of of imagery uh, as as a as part of how this film makes its meaning and communicates to to the viewer what, you know, all the all the layers on which it's operating so um yeah um so 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 great yeah. we could spend so many hours talking mm-hmm. about this film but um yeah. but let's just wrap it up there by yeah. saying a, i heartily recommend to sleep with anger yeah. um do not go into it with your mcu brain on because it's <laughs> we are trying to recalibrate y'all you know <laughs> we, we are trying to to bring a very caro movie into your you know uh your your home library mm-hmm. so so check it out yeah. to sleep with anger 1990 available on amazon is where i watched it i yeah, think carol's not, got that criterion hookup so she uh, probably gets the stuff for free but uh yeah i mean i watched it I, it's no longer on the criterion channel website where you can watch it streaming mm. unfortunately but it is available in a new yeah fairly new criterion collection edition which i'm sure has all kinds of lovely uh, yeah. supplements and things but i yeah i mean it's also just i watched it on voodoo i think so it's available mm. to stream online in many places right now Right on. All right, we will be right back to share some freakouts. What's up, FFR listeners? We've got so much great conversation coming your way this month on Feminist Frequency Radio. Why not sign up to get early access and bonus episodes? Oh, and help us keep making the show? Head on over to patreon.com slash femfreak today and sign up. What's Now it is time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Mm. I'm going to go first because I can, because I'm in control. (laughs) I am in the host chair. Um, Just a quick note, like so many people during lockdown, um, I have either been like obsessively consuming content as Anita hates for us to say, mm-hmm. um, and it's such a gross way of thinking about it, but obsessively consuming stuff or have been unable to kind of land sure. and stick with anything, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but recently I raced through um, a, a series of novels by Grace Draven um, called the Wraith King series. Mm-hmm. Now I will, I will say these are sort of um, kind of epic fantasy romance. So if that's not your jam, I don't want to hear about it. Don't write me. But if that is your jam, please dig right on in. Um, I love 
I don't even know what to say about this because the thing that, you know, it keeps drawing me in for one thing is the really natural and organic way um, that women are folded into like the sort of martial aims of the story, which sounds weird. I like to consider myself a pacifist, mm. but there's something about an ass kicking woman sure. that I really love. And the fact that, you know, no, um, this is not notable in any way. The fact that, you know, when, uh, as the story progresses, you know, someone will say like, you know, oh, so-and-so is the best fighter, you know, in this troop. Mm. And to have that be a woman, and it's just a natural occurrence. Right, you know, it's not right. something that's commented upon. Right. Or, you know, so-and-so is the king's favorite bodyguard, and it is, you know, a woman. I love that. Mm. Um, I also love, the, so the story um, is about two, you know, young people who have to come together and you know there's an arranged marriage between their two kingdoms mm. um they are neither of them is really happy about this but they do it because it's their duty as to you know royal heirs mm -hmm. uh the the woman is from this human kingdom the the male is from this kingdom um non-human kingdom oh. and so much of what happens is about them coming together and being horrified and repulsed by each other initially, but they grow to love each. You guys, oh my god, it's so it's so sweet. But it it never shies away from you know the kind of like real instinctual reactions of both of them. So uh, the husband, the dude, Brishan, um, I'm blanking on the name of his of his race right now, but they are very tall. Um, they have eyes, sort of lizard-like kind of eyes. And so he is just repulsed by um, Idliko's eyes and the fact that you can see the whites of her eyes ah, because his people don't have that. Right. And so sort of the way um, this author really skillfully reminds you of the, the things that we sort of take for granted in small ways are not culturally or, you know, species sort of, you know, like objectively, um, like they, have, they don't have currency everywhere. Right. And so like Brishan is every time his wife like rolls her eyes or her eyes open wide mm. and surprise, he's, he's sort of like disgusted yeah. a little bit. And it takes right. him a second to sort of reset. Mm -hmm. I'm not nearly giving this series um, the the love or the explanation that it's due because I'm terrible at that sort of thing. But it's called the Wraith Kings series. And there's fighting and romance. There's sorcery. There's jokes. There's drinking in alehouses. There's, you know, just like all the kind of stuff that you would want um, from a series like this with none of the bullshit. So it's by Grace Draven. It's called the Wraith King series. Um, Carol, what yeah. is your freak out? So I, I, you know, I, I was sort of torn this week between uh, To Sleep With Anger, which I'm very glad we did, and, mm -hmm. and another film um, by another, uh, who, you know, black filmmaker whose work mm -hmm. I think is, is very interesting and significant and who maybe, you know, hasn't quite gotten the, the, the respect and, you know, acclaim that he, that he deserves. Um, so um, the other film I was thinking of uh, having us talk about this week is a film called Deep Cover, um, and it's it, it's uh, directed by by Bill Duke. And so, Deep Cover um, is a is a more is a more conventionally, uh, I think, pleasurable, entertaining, exciting film than To Sleep with Anger, but uh, a really fa fascinating and excellent film that stars uh, Lawrence Fishburne and, of course, mm -hmm. Ebony's favorite favorite Jeff Goldblum. That's right. <laughs> um, but also just like a visual and stylistic beast. I mean, the fashions um, of this mm -hmm. film, the, you know, the Jeff Goldblum in like a long kind of trench coat thing looks <laughs> fucking amazing. Um, yeah. uh, but, you know, a really fascinating uh, film about like the, the drug war and identity and, um, and, but uh, Bill Duke to me is, um, so Bill Duke, people may know uh, also as like an actor. Uh, yeah. I find him to be such a fascinating screen presence. Um, mm -hmm. In the 80s, he was often like a heavy uh, in, in like action films. So for instance, he's a bad guy that Arnold Schwarzenegger has to deal with in Commando. And then in Predator, he's he's one of, he's probably the most fascinating member of Arnie's squad um, mm -hmm. there in the jungle. 
Uh, he also shows up in films like like American Gigolo and stuff like that. And he actually has a significant uh, like a small but significant role in the new Steven Soderbergh ensemble film, uh, No Sudden Move with Don Cheadle oh. and everything. So uh, it was great to see Bill Duke on screen again. But yeah, I mean, I so Deep Cover is uh, sort of, I guess, like uh, to sleep with anger. It, Deep Cover is recently kind of. Um, I think the the Criterion Collection is making some kind of course correction effort to like acknowledge that they have completely ignored black film, like like basically mm-hmm. the entirety of like a gr- right. great black cinema of. Uh, um, and you know, I mean. So, so deep cover is also uh, a, a new addition to the Criterion Collection, um, but really just a fantastic and and perhaps kind of underknown and underseen uh, '90s kind of cop, oh, you know, uh, thriller. Um, and yeah, I mean, Lawrence Fishburne looks so just. I mean, oh my god! Like it's just again, just a film, a film that I enjoy aesthetically. I just, it's a film that just. Uh, there's so many beautiful images in this film, both of its actors and just Bill Duke's use of like light and shadow and color and everything. So I'm pleased to see the film getting maybe, you know, some more sort of acclaim and recognition. Not that the Criterion Collection is the end all be all of like prestige. It, it certainly is not that. But um, but nonetheless, like it, it uh, join the collection is something that um, that I was very pleased to see. And, you know, so if that's a film that you if you're more in the mood for something that's that is gonna that is, that you don't have to recalibrate as much for as you do <laughs> to sleep with anger, but that is still like a great film um, with a you know by a black filmmaker with a with a black you know star, um, yeah, you you know Deep Cover is definitely a film that that you you should see. It's 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 uh, really really excellent. It really is, mm-hmm. and you know it has it didn't occur to me till just this moment that. You know, all the years that I've known you now, Carol, I never once suggested that we go as Lawrence Fishburne and Jeff Goldblum oh, as a Halloween costume. Oh, yeah. Would have been so natural, but oh, it's too late now. Oh, You're alas, alas. Yeah. Uh, so listen, y'all, you can submit your own freakouts at feministfrequency.com slash F-R-E-Q-O-U-T. We love to get them. We don't get them nearly enough. I think we've got a couple coming up next week mm-hmm. um, that you're going to be delighted to listen to. But yeah, send, send some more in. We like to hear what you're listening to, what you're reading, what you're watching, you know? Like, come on. Thank you all so much for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio. Tune in next week when we'll be talking about another very Carol selection, mm-hmm. the exuberant 2013 Swedish comedy drama, We Are the Best. Our show is engineered by Rob Para. Carrie Stimson provides technical support. Artwork is by Jamie Varon, and our intro music is by Phil Circus. We'll talk to y'all later. Bye, everyone.